This is Derek Wolf, just your average privileged white guy, being open-minded and learning, and I thought someone else might want to learn too. This is a show centered around social issues where each episode I listen to someone's story in the search of the truth. Today, I got the opportunity to sit down with Raheem Buford, author, lecturer, entrepreneur, and advocate. But you'd never guess he was incarcerated for 26 years. So here's Raheem to tell us about a world we know nothing about. I'm Raheem Buford, and I am, a, I guess you could say, original Nashvilleian. A native Nashvilleian. I was born in 1971 in the South Nashville area over uh, Nolensville Road, Hubbard Hospital. And yeah, I, that was my humble beginnings, a lot in that span of time. And we moved uh, when I was about five from that Nolensville, Harding Place area to uh, Northeast Nashville, Parkwood Estates. And from like five, six, all the way up to 18. That was where I lived, and um, and then at age eighteen, a few months afterwards, uh, I moved out of. Uh, uh, I guess you can say I moved out of the city by force. Yeah. Oh, I see. So yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't voluntary. <laughs> it wasn't voluntary voluntary in the sense knowing and intelligent. But what happened is is that I ended up getting a life sentence in prison. So. I was moved from Nashville to Memphis. When you were 18? Well, I, when I was 19, I was arrested when I was 18. Sure, but and, you were still very young. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And so I'm just saying all that to try to look at where I lived. But, you know, I'm, so Memphis, uh, Tiptonville, Tennessee, Henning, Tennessee, only Tennessee, Hickman County, and back to Davidson County, in 2002 and from 2002 up until 2015, I'm still in the cage. Broke through it, three parole hearings, 2015. I've uh, been out uh, for six years now, and a lot has happened over the course of my life. So, yeah, I don't know if that's a good introduction or not. <laughs> I think that's a lot. So I think um, 26 years, is that how long that you were? You were locked up? 26 years, caged, uh, seven different prisons. You know, you used the word caged, and another uh, term you've used is uh, incarcerated. Mm-hmm. So what can you tell us a little bit about some of the vocabulary that, right. that that's preferred? Well, caged is more accurate to give you a description of what I would want someone listening to visualize as how people live in prison because incarceration, I try to be politically correct so people can understand sometimes say Cajun turns people off and maybe, you know, certain demographics because it's too strong of a term Mm -hmm. because when we think of cages, we think animals deserve to be in cages. And the reality is, is that when human beings are um, removed from society and exiled into places we call prisons, we actually do live in cages. We call them cells. We call them prisons. Those are the nice ways to think about it. But the reality is, is that there's a human being whose liberty and will is um, pretty much restrained to the degree that his whole life, her whole life is really under the control of the Department of Corrections. So I want people to understand 
that the experience of being in prison is like a cage. And it's not just the physical aspects of it all. But what happens is what I call a thingification process is once you enter the system and your civilian clothing is removed, it's replaced with state clothing for undergarments, for T-shirts, for a pair of pants, um, for uh, TDOC shirts, and two laundry bags for your property, shaving of one's head, mustache, and you inducted into this system where you're you're totally dependent upon it, uh, and there is this divorce from society in a way that you really have to adopt or adapt or even revert to your instinctual way in which you want to survive. So it's kind of like you, you go down a few notches when you go into the prison industrial complex as a resident. So it's a, it's a system and I know that it's not one with, it's called a rehabilitation system, but obviously we know that, um, Recidivism, is that the correct term uh, for the when it, how many people return back to prison? It's, right. It's a pretty high number. I think it's 70%. 75% in five years nationally. I think it's like 50% at a certain point in time and 53% at a certain point in time in Tennessee that, you know, 53% of the people who are released will return. That is recidivism. And I think that rehabilitation used in corrections is a misnomer. I think rehabilitation is something that happens to a body that is injured, that had a certain amount of functionality and performance. And over time, after an injury, you can return to that. That's the rehabilitation. But the prefix in rehabilitation, to go back, individuals that end up in prison, they usually don't have something to go back to as though they had a certain ability to begin with because the failure of their living in society, you know, whether you broke the social contract or whether you're innocent, you know, is two different ways to view it. But going to prison, there's nothing to be rehabilitated. There has to be a transformation. And that particular idea of change happens internally. And it's a different model than what we think of rehabilitation because rehabilitation, like I said, to me, it's a misnomer. However, you can act it out. It's behavioral. You know, you can change the way you behave. That's rehabilitation, I think. I don't really know what it is. But if you can change the way that you think, which is transformational, that's a different dynamic in how a person exits uh, captivity or being in prison. Yo, I agree with that. You, if you change the way someone thinks, then you're going to impact their behavior. So I, I would, I would agree with that. And so, it, what do you think about the system that? Well, you said earlier you said something like they didn't have anything to go back to, as if you know what what was their baseline. Um, and you might alluded to maybe that that they have some personal trauma going on. I mean, is that really yeah. what what's happening? Is that the prison system is just a, um, it's almost a, a punishment for um, having more obstacles in your life or maybe less support in a sense. Yeah. And so, you know, being conscious of the potential audience here and, and I want to say that 
in order for a person, in my opinion, to be um, accountable and appreciate choices or decisions, choices are different than decisions to me. Choices mean you have options. But if you grow up and you're poor and you're uneducated and you, you know, maybe come from a dysfunctional family to the 10th degree, meaning maybe a single parent mother, maybe even raised by your grandmother. You're living in a neighborhood where survival is kind of like, you know, the theme. And you have these aspirations to get rich because you feel like money will be the antidote, you know, to your problems. But you don't really have the inner um, dynamics of, of, of the building blocks of success in terms of what it, you know, like I'm going to set this goal. I'm going to reach this goal and then I'm going to set another goal and I'm, you know, and you're going to find the the ways in which you can make that happen. So a person who has no education, misinformation, public schooling is more likely uh, to have trauma in their formative years and to engage in conduct that would be detrimental to his or her life. Now, some people say that's a choice. Well, I'm saying you don't have a choice until you're fully informed, until you're educated. And that's when you have a choice. And if you still choose the wrong route after you've been educated, then you have to accept and deal with the consequences. And so what I'm getting at and what I'm saying is I don't make excuses for individuals. I don't make excuses for myself. But what I try to do is explain that people that make choices that harm other individuals, there is something else happening with that person. And just to look at the bad act that that person may have committed alone and you isolate what happened before that, then you're not really, you know, making a judgment on who the person really is or who, you know, and what happened. And so, you know, when I think about where we are in, in our society, we're moved to hurt people who hurt people, even though hurt people hurt people. And it's like, so we're doing the very thing that we know is not necessarily the right approach, and which is why we're getting the wrong results. Mm -hmm. So in the criminal punishment system, which is a part of the criminal legal experience, because once you get to the, the, the prison industrial complex, you can kind of loop all these things into it. But if you break it down, the criminal legal system for a person who has been arrested and is poor and receives uh, uh, an indigent defense attorney, whether it's a public defender or a private attorney, is more likely to end up doing time than one who can't afford that. And so if that end up, that person goes to prison, there was no trial. It's probably a plea bargain. And it really wasn't a bargain. It was just like the idea that, okay, if I go on and take this time now, I'll get out sooner than if I wait it out and end up, you know, getting more time than, than, you know, I can, I feel like I can do. And so here it is. I'm in this system and I'm trying to get out of it. So I'm going to act out whatever I need to act out. I mean, I'm going to take all these programs and I'm going to check the box and just, just hope and pray that if I do have a parole date, that the parole board will grant me parole, even though 99% of the people who have their first parole hearing will not make it, you still have this like this hope. But the reality is, is that you're not changed. 
you have not transformed. And so when you finally get out of prison, and when you talked about recidivism, because there is this thing that when I was in prison, I was taking a psychology class. I call it IDD, Institutionalized Dependency Disorder. And I uh, kind of became aware of this with two of my colleagues um, in prison with me. We were reading about this story of Pavlo and, and feeding these dogs. And he would just ring this bell, and then he would feed these dogs. And then like after 60-some days, he would ring this bell, and the dogs would begin to salivate. And we would t- and, and and it was kind of giving us ideas about classical and operative conditioning. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, wow, what happens to human beings over a period of time in a total institution? They're hearing these keys, these loud noises, child time, you know, wake, being awakened at two and three o'clock in the morning to have these cell shakedowns and searches, um, seeing all the violence, the disrespectful ways in which, you know, humanity is aborted. I mean, so many different things. What's happening to these individuals? That's the question. And since there's no real mental health in prison, that person gets out. Even though he went through these programs, we should not be surprised that that individual who encounters his or her first extreme level of stress does not have the ability to manage it because there was no transformation. He or she reverts back to what was always there to begin with which was the survival. It's not just even survival. It's that the person never really changed. And so when we're talking about accountability and we're talking about a system, there is no accountability within the Tennessee Department of Corrections with a budget of 1.3 billion. And then this parole board, 3.8 million and with 50% failing. And nowhere in our country, if you had a business that is 50% of everything that you produce, was defected that you could stay in business. And so when we talk about accountability and we're talking about being conservative, that's a mismanagement of our money, tax dollars. And I I feel that because there are other models available that we have not, you know, chosen to look at. And these are restorative, transformative models of change. Whereas individuals will have to, come to terms with the fact that if they harm someone, that they harm that person. And whoever that person who was harmed, even that person or that family needs to have some level within the system that they can find healing. And right now, the system feeds on this adversarial process to where they can keep what we call victims and and, and, and offenders, you know, kind of like at odds with each other. And so... The system isn't broken. So let's clear this up. People say the system is broken. The system is not broken. The system is working exactly the way it's supposed to work because the Mm -hmm. system actually, unfortunately, and I don't mean any disrespect to anybody who works in the criminal legal system, specifically in prisons, is that we have a population, a demographic of individuals who are unmarketable in terms of skill set to work in an evolving economy. And if we are going to continue to employ employ uh, individuals within the system, certain people have to have certain jobs. And the prison industrial complex provides employment for lots and lots, thousands of people just in Tennessee alone, thousands of people. We're talking about thousands of people, even though the results say that we have to do something different. And I, I, I could go on, but I don't want to just kind of like be stuck in that moment. So, but yeah. 
Well, yeah, I think you mentioned that it was the the largest employer in the United States. Is that true? That, yeah, that's what my last numbers were. Larger than Walmart, GM combined. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. Right? The prison sector, and that's that's the whole United States. And we're talking about more than eighty billion. It's probably a hundred billion um a, a year at this point, just nationally, if not more. Wow. I just listened to Raheem. This stuff just blows my mind. And when he's here, he's talking about systems. I believe really what he's talking about more specifically is the corrections and criminal justice system and, and even more specifically mass incarceration. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Currently, there are 2.3 million people incarcerated in the United States. That's more than any other nation in the world, more than China or Russia. Even though we are only 4% of the world's population, we have 22% of the world's prison population. Our prison population rate is five times higher than the UK and 15 times higher than Japan's. Now, our prison system has been around since our founding. And our founders actually knew what it was like to be the accused. That's why four of the first ten amendments of the Constitution protected the rights of the accused or convicted. But you wouldn't think that today. Now, we're talking about mass incarceration that really took off in the 70s. And that was because of a 60s crime wave. So legislation was passed declaring a war on drugs and being tough on crime, which we know now was just thinly veiled racial rhetoric because ultimately that legislation disproportionately impacted the black and brown community. Budgets for federal law enforcement soared during the 80s while slashing budgets for important social programs such as the National Institute on Drug Abuse and the Department of Education. When Reagan took office, the prison population was at 329,000. Eight years later, it nearly doubled to 627,000. The 1994 crime bill, drafted by Joe Biden and passed by Bill Clinton, was the largest crime bill in history, giving $9.7 billion to prisons. But violent crime and property crimes had already begun to drop since 1990. This bill included harsher sentencing and the three strikes law, which meant that no matter what it was, your third felony meant you could get 25 to life. From 1984 to 2012, life sentences more than quadrupled. And again, all of this disproportionately impacted the black and brown community. For example, you had the crack versus cocaine sentencing ratio of 100 to 1. So that meant that a white person who normally does cocaine, it would take 500 grams for him to get a five-year sentence, where someone caught with crack which was at that time known to be more prominent in the black community, would only have to have five grams to get the same five-year sentence. And did you know that black people are twice as likely to be arrested for drugs, even though they're not more likely to use or sell them compared to whites? Blacks were six times as likely as whites to be sentenced to prison for identical crimes, and even then they get 19% longer sentence. In 1987, the famous Balda study showed people accused of killing white victims were four times as likely to be sentenced to death as those accused of killing black victims. When they looked at of those who were convicted who was actually executed, those convicted of killing a white victim were 17 times more likely to be executed 
than those who were convicted of killing a black victim. And they repeated this study in 2017 that showed similar results. And there's, then there's the question of fiscal responsibility. In 2020, the U.S. government spent $85 billion on prisons. That's a growth of 310% since 1982. And depending on the age, the cost of an individual could be $27,000 to $59K a year to hold. But now when we're talking about governmental costs related to the entire corrections and criminal justice system, so now we're talking not just prisons, but police and the court system and probation, the annual budget is over $300 billion which is more than China spends on their military. This is at a rate of $134,400 per person detained, with a recidivism rate of 60 plus percent, which frustrates me knowing that we only spend $12,624 per student annually on public education. You said that it's um, the system's not broke; it's designed to do. And uh, you know, I, right. I think using the the description that it's a punitive system, and that and that approach maybe is is what's the, what the issue is. But how do we hold people accountable, and and how do we uh, create a safe society? I think what we have to do is do what's happening now. We have to bridge gaps, and the only way to bridge gaps. Um, to take away from some things I've learned uh, just studying the course of Brian Stevenson and some of the ideas that he gave us to move towards changing our society. You know, he wrote this book, Just Mercy. He says we have to be in proximity, number one. Number two, he says we have to be in situations where we're uncomfortable, number two. And number three, we, we can't lose hope. And so... You know, what does that mean for different people living in America? Because we all come here for, came in different reasons. My history, Africa and England. You know, I have this poem titled, Who Am I? And like on the last stanza, it's in my book, uh, title, uh, my book, Save Your Own Life. I guess I can plug that. I mean, you know, hey, <laughs> but really it's, 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 a, it's a poem that I say, who am I? And at the end, I say Africa or England of which do I claim motherland, America the beautiful, America the great, America, America, America. It's not too late. Who am I? I am you. And so what I'm doing in the poem is taking the reader through not just my life, but the lives of many of those who end up in the prison punishment system. And if you don't really understand how they got there, you really don't really know how to make positive steps towards bringing about different results, you see? And so, yes, we do have a punitive system, but it's retribution. Mm -hmm. And so that particular idea of justice was crafted long before you and I were born and many others. And so in order for it to change, we have to redefine what justice looks like. And I believe in restorative, transformative justice. And so that makes us look at the human being beings involved in whatever you know actions that occur that harm you know individuals within our society we can't have a lawless society but at the same time we can't refuse what's central to humanity and that's empathy mm -hmm. 
And so if you can keep me divided because I'm black and you're white and you're Chinese and you're Latina, Latinx or LGBTQIP, I mean, people, groups and groups of people. So what does it mean to be an American? You see, we have to get to that point. What does it mean to be American? So for me, you know, I'm ingrained in the culture of just my history of how I got here. And so if you make me un-American because of legislation and because my humanity and the flawedness of what I am demonstrated or, you know, because I, you know, committed a bad act, but I was punished by going to prison. But you took my citizenship as well. So I can't vote. And you're saying that I counseled something that I had no knowledge of, which I know I'm going into something different. However, it's just like, you know, the conversation takes me different places when I think about the culture and the, the, the country in which I live, because I'm very much American as the next person. In fact, I'm, I'm the worst of what America has been because the very things that, you know, those who go to prison, go to prison for and are considered felons. That's what built our country. They, they, they're crimes now, but they weren't crimes then. And so I think that in order for us to really kind of look at this thing as we in this together, we really got to see each other as, you know, fellow Americans. And that's kind of like, you know, and that's the reason why I'm doing this work that I'm doing, because I actually want to bridge gaps. And in order to bridge gaps, not only do we have to have conversations, but we have to deal with the tough thing. And, you know, the big elephant in the room in most situations when, you know, black and white people come together, you know, it's either going to be the history of slavery and the guilt that's attending that and how, you know, if I was white, I wouldn't want to feel like, you know, I didn't do that. My ancestors did that. Why are you going to charge me with that? I'm not charging you with that, you know, but your ancestors or, our, you know, the, the institutions were put in place to favor you because you're white. Right. And these institutions disfavor me because I'm considered black. Nobody asked me what I want to be. You just you just made me black. You made me African-American. And I'm not saying I'm not either, but I'm just at what point does freedom allow for you to decide who and what you are in terms of your identity? Right. And so, you know, bridging those gaps, we have to have these hard conversations. And some people don't want to have these conversations because some people and I'm saying in this case, I'm going to say there are some white people who believe that, OK, even though I'm poor and I'm white and I vote against my self-interest sometimes. At least I know white people are in control and at the least white people won't do me wrong. This is my thinking now. I'm thinking about because I'm I'm <laughs> yeah, trying okay. to figure out I'm trying to figure out how is it that you and I can be in the same situation. I'm white and you're black. You vote one way, I vote another way. And then at the end of the day, um, you're not gonna get help. And neither am I. Because even if your person or people got in, it never trickles down to you. And and it doesn't trickle down to me. And so I just kind of think that at a certain point, some of us have to be courageous enough to step outside of that box and step into the same space and be like, all right, let's hash this out. Let's argue this out. Let's figure it out. And we may not agree, but at least we're trying to do something. This is dinner talk, lunch talk, maybe even breakfast talk. And that's, this is this covenant to say, hey, we're going to be sociable, uh, agree, you know, even if we disagree, we're going to be respectful. Because, see, I believe in this country in a way that, like, I mean, I'm, look at, I'm here. I was caged for 26 years of my life, okay? I was supposed to die in prison. You don't give a 
individual, black, white, red, brown, Mexican, it don't matter, a life and 20 year sentence and expect them to sub to survive in the criminal Ill prison industrial complex, the punishment system, whatever. You don't expect that. So, but I did survive. And not only did I survive, but I took advantage of opportunities that were there, but I even created some opportunities for myself and others while I was there. And um, since then, I've graduated from college. I received a scholarship while I was in prison. I ran two nonprofits. I just retired from one and um, I'm just, you know, I'm Unheard Voices Outreach full time now. And so if I can become a better individual, you know, others can do the same if given the right tools. And right now we're not given the tools. And if you're not given the tools, you shouldn't expect that person to succeed because they got one hand behind the back or they got one, you know, leg, you know, kind of in a stretch. How did it work for you? Yeah, what was the, I mean, is this something that was a long time coming? I mean, did you did you start out, um, you didn't always have that attitude when you got locked up, right? So that had to develop over time. In a way, it did develop over time, but I, I, I think it's very important to understand that People do not become prisoners, criminals, whatever we decide, you know, these dehumanizing terms um, overnight. And I was a good person before I committed crimes. And what does a good person mean? I had a neighborhood. People loved or liked me. I spent the night over more people's houses in the neighborhood than anybody in my neighborhood in Parkwood. I was well known. I wasn't a bad person. But what ended up happening in my life is, is that I was in a bad home situation. Fight with my stepdad. Couldn't stay there. If you put your hands on the man who paid the rent and everything, because he 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 did, he you know, he's in my mind, he started it. He stole my pistol. And where I'm from, you need a pistol because you think somehow that's going to protect you. And he stole it. And it's like, his, so to me, he put my life in danger. I confronted him. He laughed it off and I pretended like I said, all right, you know, pulling my shirt like it's like I got another strap. And before I made it into the next bedroom, he was behind me, locking me up and we were falling on this bed. And once we hit on the bed, the bounce from the bed, I spun around real quick, like jujitsu style and flipped it. And then I just I lost it. My brother told me I threw my mom in the closet. He said, you know, Larry just folded up. That's my stepdad. And, you know, I had to go. And. And I wasn't ready to go. I I wasn't a grown-up, an adult, even though I was 18. And I moved in with a friend. And when I moved in with this friend, Tim, at a certain point, he couldn't pay the rent because he was on child support and he had filed for Chapter 13 or 7. I don't know. It's some kind of bankruptcy. And he said, I, he woke me up one morning and he said, young blood, I can't pay the bills. You're going to have to go back home. And going back home meant going back to hell. So I said, what if I could get the money? And I knew I could do something to get the money. I knew it would involve a crime. Yes, I knew it was wrong. But in my mind, I'm like, if I don't do this, I don't know what's going to happen. So I was willing to take the, ri the risk to commit a crime so that I wouldn't have mm. to go back to a bad situation. Yeah. And, you know, eventually that would, that would add up and it resulted, you know, in you know, me being charged with felony murder. But even before that, there was problems. Juvenile, grandmother dying, closer to my grandmother than anybody else. And 
didn't know how to deal with that trauma, that pain. And first time in my life, you know, I'm feeling pain. My grandmother's dead and nobody hit me. So I'm saying a lot of things to say that before people end up in prison, they are someone. And because our criminal legal system doesn't deal with their humanity, it changes their identity. You come from being somebody with a name, a family, to the de defendant. And as long as I deal with you as a defendant, there are certain categories of your life I don't have to address. And since I don't have to address certain categories of your life, you know, justice is something that you will never get. Because the only way to give me justice is to know who I am, to balance out all the things that I've done and in, in, in my peers who are really my peers, not just because they live in my neighborhood, but people who understand my life, how I, they make a decision. And that's not what's happening in America right now. Not in Tennessee. Well, it's something you mentioned, your stepdad. So did you, you had a two parent family or how, what was your family makeup? So it started off single parent mother. Um, I saw my dad from time to time, but I didn't see him enough to even really know who he was, you know. And my mom, rather than try to raise children as a single parent, married a man that she didn't love. Mm. And in marrying a man that she loved, it still wasn't to a parent, two parent thing. Because he favored his own children. Once he had a child, he would show favoritism and do things that were just totally, you know, wrong for a parent sure and while he was around he wasn't a father he didn't teach me things he didn't take me out in football baseball you know son show you things write a passage type of stuff it was nothing like that i don't think it was in him to do it and i i don't i'm not mad at him but but that's yeah. something that you didn't have you didn't have a mentor you didn't right. have a father figure somebody who wanted to protect me yeah somebody who wanted to make sure that by any means necessary that my life would continue in existence even if his had to go mm. i didn't have that so you know while he, she married him she married a husband but i didn't gain a father i didn't right. gain a stepdad i lived in that home but it wasn't like a real like that's my stepdad like he was proud of his stepchildren no None of that. Uh, so I, I, you were talking in one of your um, earlier lectures uh, that I watched online, and mm -hmm. they talked about that when you did get charged with the crime, that you had multiple lawyers. And what was that experience like being that young, faced with with such a a, a heavy penalty, and um, just what was that that life? Yeah, you? so that was overwhelming, and. I was arrested May the 5th, 1989, and not long after I was arrested, uh, I was given an attorney. His name was Lonnie Hoover. He was a private attorney, and it was like the first time I met this person, this guy is talking about a life sentence. You'll be lucky if you get a life sentence. So I knew then that I got the wrong attorney, and you know, I just told myself, hang on for as long as you can try to get another attorney. And I eventually ended up with, with a public defender. Her name was Christine Freeman. It was kind of similar, but that she was more compassionate and, and softer in her way of trying to help me to understand the severity of what I had been charged with. And so, you know, eventually she was gone and she ended up going in New York. And then I ended up with an attorney. His name was Ross Alderman. And he 
you know, so we're talking and I'm explaining to him, like, look, man, I'm not guilty of all of this. It's, it's a lot of things happening. So we went through this little process and, you know, emotional discoveries and everything. And he saw that in some interviews where there was robbers, because multiple robbers, I was the only one involved in those robberies, you know, so other people. But I was the only one charged and I was the only one that ended up doing time. But long story short, I was slated to go to trial for a robbery that he knew I wasn't fully guilty of in the way that I was charged. And so we were going to go to trial. And the day we was going to pick a jury, somehow he convinced me that, look, we're going to take this time and we're going to fight later on the felony murder charge. Mm. But what I did by taking that time was I was more or less set myself up for the death penalty. Because, you you know, one felony, if they can prove that, you can, they could, they, they never, the state never filed for um, you know, to seek the death penalty, but they could have. And so, yeah, I ended up going through quite a few attorneys, you know, and uh, never really feeling like anybody fought for me. And, yeah, that's, you know, part of the reason why I do the work that I do today. Mm. Man, that's that's kind of hard to listen to. I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Yeah, well, you know, that's the thing. And that is why, you know, we need indigent defense reform. I work with the Choosing Justice Initiative. I was founded by former public defender Dawn Diener. And through her firm, which is a not-for-profit who represents indigent defense, indigent persons charged with a crime, they handle both criminal and civil situations. But you get the same quality of defenses if you hire someone like David Rabin or Peter Strine or somebody that's a real top-notch lawyer. Because right now, judges appoint attorneys. And that's, to me, a conflict of interest. Because if you're an attorney and I'm a judge, and you're eating off this system, which is one day I'm going to do this piece called Decoding Systems, where I break down the criminal legal system. And real quick, what I'll do is say, like, if you're the judge, I'm the judge and you're an attorney, I'm appointing people to your case, to cases to you. Let's just say you're making $1,000 per case. Why would you risk losing that clientele that the judge is giving you for me, this client who says, I want you to fight for me and I want to file this, even though you know the judge doesn't want this to be filed because the culture within the courtroom are judge and district attorney centered, meaning they try to make decisions based upon what's going to move the docket faster. And it's really not about practicing law. And my opinion is, is that there are not very many attorneys who actually practice law. Filing motions, winning motions, suppression motions, various challenges to uh, evidence, uh, chain of custody, uh, challenging of the indictment, faulty indictment. Um, there are so many ways in which attorneys could fight cases and they don't. So, you know, they max out on these thousand dollar cases fifty dollars an hour which they don't earn enough you know i'm just these are private attorneys right now that i'm speaking about who do indigent defense and then if we talk about public defenders you have a lot of public defenders who are great in terms of their spirit but in terms of their practice because of the culture within the criminal legal system in the judicial um aspects of you know they even feel sometimes like if they fight hard they're going to be punished later on by like the district attorney for, you know, fighting so hard on one case. And now they get another case, you know, 
it's going to be harder for them to win. So that's so much bargaining and planning and people aren't really. So if you have an independent agency over here that's paying attorneys who have to meet a certain standard of representation and they pay them more, $75 an hour, um, and they get better results for the clients, then I feel like the system is correct, you know, in that way, because if you can afford an attorney, you don't have this problem. Now, you might buy a no good attorney, but at least you chose that. If you're poor, you don't choose your mm -hmm. attorney. Yeah, your choice. Yeah. Right. Um, just to tell you a little bit about me, Raheem, like uh, I, I was quite troubled. Um, I, I'm, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And uh, during my drinking days, uh, well, I've been arrested six times. Um, I've had multiple DUIs and, uh, each time I had a safety net, I came, um, from a privileged background, um, upper class and my parents always, uh, gave me money for a lawyer. Um, and I've never spent one night in jail other than the night that I got arrested. Most of my record has been expunged. I mean, you, you, it's, it's crazy to me, you know, People labeled George Floyd a criminal. I've been arrested. <laughs> He's only been arrested seven times. I've been arrested six. So, uh, you know, we're we're not far off. Um, and nobody's ever called me a criminal. Um, but, uh, you know, I've definitely um, caused enough havoc in my time. Um, I'm glad those days are behind me. But, you know, that's one of the disparities that I see that, that makes me think, like, hey, something's up. I mean, how can I get arrested six times? Um, and, and turn out okay. And, and, uh, you know, other people make, you know, much, many fewer mistakes and, and probably don't get the breaks that I did end up with a record getting locked up. Um, who knows? And so, uh, I just think that there's, there was, that's when, that's just one thing in my, my life, one personal experience that I can use to, that sends a red flag off. I mean, I had, you know, not just my skin color, but my class privilege. Um, so, you know, I had a lot of safety nets. And I have to think that if I didn't have um, those privileges, if I didn't have those safety nets, uh, what would have happened to my life? Where would I be today? And so, um, you know, I don't ever pass judgment, man, because um, I've made my mistakes. And, and again, you know, somebody's been looking out for me. I feel extremely blessed to be alive to not have killed somebody else you know as many times as i drank and drove um so i mean i i'm 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 very fortunate um to to be where i am today so um you know to hear your story man it's it's tragic uh but inspiring in the same sense because of who you've become and what you're doing with your life and coming on here and sharing with us and i, I really appreciate it and taking that time and being so vulnerable, you know, I think that's something that we need to do more of today. And in today's time, you talk about having these hard conversations. That's when we have to be vulnerable and be authentic and, and realize that we're not perfect. And, uh, you know, I think there's an issue of humility there that, that people are missing. Uh, and and I, that's what's happened for me. Um, you know, I um, in empathy, you mentioned empathy earlier, and, and that's, a, that's a, a big thing, too. I um, I don't know if I shared this with you, but my daughter, she's a, uh, a two time cancer survivor mm. and, and she's doing great now. And we're, she's, you know, um, a beautiful seven year old. Her birthday was yesterday actually. And, um, but through that experience, um, people around us, um, just couldn't understand really what we were going through. 
um, they, you know, no matter how close they were, they, they would, I don't know, we could just tell that they just don't get it. And, and everybody loved, you know, it wasn't amount of love or just effort. It's just until you walk those shoes, man, you just don't know. And that experience really taught me that lesson that we take for granted that we just understand other people's lives and we don't realize how nuanced and different all of our lives can truly be. Um, and so, you know, that's why I'm on this journey of trying to understand. And you mentioned proximity earlier, you know, like that that's so important is that um, we're not going to learn unless we put ourselves in, in situations to, to be educated. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get more involved and I'm trying to meet people like you to, so I can learn more because I mean, the things that you're sharing with me today, obviously I had no idea how, you know, the talking about just how the court system is ran, you know, that, that is just, um, mind blowing to me, but yet, you know, um, you're very familiar with that system and it's just chewing people up and, and, um, and, and not rehabilitating like we would hope. Um, I, that all people assume, you know, I mean, um, there's just a lot of misconceptions out there. Um, I, yeah. y- we've had a, a couple conversations and one thing you, you, um, sent me was, um, that there's two types of white racism. Right. And right. I, and I thought that, can you, can yeah. you explain to our, our listeners what you meant I, by that? Absolutely. And, and, and there could be more, but so I'm still learning. I just want to come out and say that I was I was taught racism in its most in-depth way uh, by a white woman. Her name was Reverend Janet Wolf, and she's the reason why I was able to begin the journey of education, which education became my liberation, because I was looking into a college window while I was in prison, and I had applied, but I was denied because I had no previous college experience. And what I would do, because I was the president of a organization while I was in prison at Riverbend Maximum Security Institution, I would leave my office and go look into the window where they were having college classes. And like the third week, this lady came out and she asked, she said, young man, why are you looking through that window? I said, ma'am, because I believe that I deserve to be in that room. She asked me, could I write an essay? And I didn't even know if I could because I barely passed my GED. And um, I worked on it for a week. I got some of the old heads, which was people who had been in prison longer than me, to look over it and you know finally when I got the approval I returned it to her and the next week after I'm taking graduate level college classes with Vanderbilt Divinity School having no previous undergrad and so that was the beginning <laughs> of a journey yeah yeah and awesome. uh, she taught me about racism and so she would say that she said all white people are racist <laughs> now it doesn't make sense because a lot of people think racism means you hate black people. But that's not what that means in totality. Because there is what I call, which is white privilege. I call that like a form of soft racism. It's just you don't hate black people or people of color. You were born white. You have no control over that genetic factor. You enjoy the privileges of what the institutions afford you as a white person. Just because you're white, but you don't hate black people. And so that particular form of racism, meaning there is institutionalized privilege 
and even power available to you in these various structures just because you're white. Then you have this actual racist, white supremacist-type-minded person who dislikes black people, people of color, even Jews probably, who in his or her thinking do not see an equal. They see someone who doesn't deserve the same privileges, the same humanity, the same everything as everybody else. And that person probably was raised that way. And in my mind, I see that there's a lot of immaturity in, in what, what racism, because racism on one level, if it were equation, it would be prejudice plus power. I don't like you, even though I don't know you. And I got the power to show you that I did that, that I don't by denying you this loan over here, by disallowing you to live over in this area where there's more safety, there's gated community. And we have these ways in which we can put up roadblocks for your success over historically, you know, even passing down wealth and denying the loans. And, back, you know, it's so many ways in which we look at that. And so you, you got that person who hates people because he or she is really afraid. Afraid that if they share power, they may lose privilege. Or if they share or even give up and become like, for example, and you know, I you know, I'm I don't know if I'm political or not, but maybe what I say may sound political. You know, I can't vote right now. Over 240, two, 220, more than 220,000, 420,000 Tennesseans can't vote because of felonism, right? Felonism is the social, political, and economic suppression, oppression, and discrimination against persons who have been uh, convicted of a felony. Now, the deeper aspects of me not being able to vote and those other, you know, 420-some-odd thousand is that we don't participate fully in society. And you cannot have a pure democracy where some people who have not given up their rights by choice, meaning it was a force. Like, I didn't even know I would lose my citizenship rights by pleading guilty. No one said that I would no longer be a full citizen of the United States of America, or at least in Tennessee. And so when you can take and undermine democracy through power, and in Tennessee, Republicans are in control, and the majority is white, that is a form of... Of racism because the majority of the people who are disenfranchised per capita are people of color. Although Republicans did not, in my studies, uh, implement this policy, Democrats did in the early 80s, it nonetheless affects me. And so I'm saying that racism on so many levels plays out. And so everybody that's white is, doesn't hate black people, people of color, or whatever. They just benefit from the things that are in place in society that was set up, you know, for a certain class of people to rule and be privileged by, advantaged by. I, I like that your focus on race, when we're talking about racism, is more on systems. And I think a lot of white people, when I get in discussions with uh, some of my more conservative friends about racism, it's about oh, hey, did you see what the mayor said the other day to the reporters? Or did you see about the BLM guys? You know, I mean, so uh, about saying that, you know, and I'm and, and and I get into these 
tit for tat discussions on whether what they said was racist or not, which in my opinion, it's not because it doesn't have the system. But those arguments are almost um, a diversion from the real issue is that racism is the systems that are in place that uh, that hold back, not these um, one offs where someone may be being just more prejudiced than anything. Right, right. And just even the term racist itself is not quite per- correctly placed in how we, we use it in our vernacular. Uh, even just the IST on anything more or less connotes like a person who's professional, a physicist, you know, in this particular, you're specialized in this particular field of study, right? So a racist technically would really mean a person who specializes in, you know, the field of, you know, race and things of that nature. But because we use words and we try to, it doesn't always add up, but um, a prejudiced point of view is just, I look at something without the facts and I give you an opinion and then I adopt an attitude about it. That's a prejudiced point of view. It's quite an uninformed way of viewing things. Like if I'm white and I don't like black people and I've never met black people and I've never been in the company of black people, how do you know who you're dealing with? How do how can you justify disliking me, disadvantaging me if you don't even know me? So it's quite unintelligent to to do that. And so I think sometimes we just have to challenge the the ignorance of such, meaning lacking in knowledge. That's what ignorance is, even stupidity, you know, on certain levels, because we're stronger together. There are gifts and talents that everybody in life, you know, human beings have. You know, even if you look through history, even as people who had been enslaved black people in America, because once that chain was broken from Africa and then there was a new people that were born out of this experience, um, we still add it to the culture in ways that, you know, added spice jazz, you know what I mean? Taking pork and taking the guts and making delicacies and um, sharecropping and showing you different, you know, I mean, black people made quite a bit of contributions um, and inventions to the country and it's just, it's hidden. So a lot of white people think that, you know, like, you know, black people aren't doing anything, you know, have done anything. Black people aren't, you know, you know, you might hear about George, Was- George Washington Carver, you know, in the peanut and peanut butter and you know but you know what i mean benjamin bannerkin yeah. you know you know the blueprint of washington dc and the creation of clocks and things but there are so many more black inventors and yeah. people who have added to the culture that if you knew maybe you might think a little different but you know at the end of the day racism in the negative sense is fear it's false evidence appearing real you know that's the acronym for me and it's hurting us as a country because we could be truly a great country, not great as in we go back to the way it used to be in, you know, desegregation. I mean, segregation. Great as in we have a multi-diverse, culturally, ethnically, you know, diverse country, and we all work together to do what we can to uh, benefit our citizens you know, the most, that kind of country, utopia, call it what you want to, but that potential is within America and we can do that, but it's going to take people really pushing for that and believing in that and knowing that, you know, at a certain point, we don't really need Democrat, Republican, you know, we, we need what's best for the people, ideas and policies 
that will benefit us all because we all want to live a whole healthy and positive life that, you know, our grandchildren, you know, our children can grow up safe and feel like and be proud to be an American because, you know, we do great good in the world. That's 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 why we got to get rid of racism. You know what I mean? Because quite frankly, you know, I, I, you know, I grew up disliking white people, quite frankly. You mm-hmm. know, my, my dad made us fight white people. He was from Kentucky. I, my stepdad, that is. That's what I'm talking about. Made us fight white people at a certain point. And what I found out or what I learned through my history is that he lived in Kentucky. So he he were, he heard this nigga all, you know, nigga, you know, talk a lot. Mm-hmm. And so he was, you know, raised in that era where there was tension, racial tension. And so I guess he developed this dislike for white people and it carried on. There are a lot of black people that don't trust white people or like white people because of what was passed on. And, you know, some people may say, well, why is that not racism? Well, again, it depends on how we define it because if, if we define it by prejudice plus power, me as an individual, I can do as much as an individual can do. Me as, as, a, as, a, as a person who's in control of institutional power, a military, you know, uh, uh, the National Guard or, you know, the police department or various different means and money and banks and places. And, you know, what I mean, that's different. So you, you have a dislike as a black person and even it's equally wrong if you don't know the people you dislike. I don't condone that. That's not right. But if I have a bad encounter with you. I, I think I have, I'm justified in not liking you, liking you, you know? So, uh, but I got over that because of what happened in college and in prison and my whole community was white. And I'm like, man, I didn't even know white people was nice. Real sure, talk. Yeah, I'm just yeah. being real talk. I mean, it's just befuddled my mind. Like this, something is wrong with these people. You didn't trust them at first. I'm sure. No, I mean, I didn't have a reason to, because if you're sitting up in the courtroom and everybody's white and you end up with a life sentence, mm. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, what are you supposed to do, you know, as, as a black person? But, you know, being adventurous and willing to step outside my own comfort zone, I made inroads to change and things. And so, you know, I just continue to evolve. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, you, you come a, a long way, man. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's, it's only because, first, you know, the education and intention, but I love my country, man. I really like, I really love America. Like, and I love it probably because I, I didn't have a childhood, like a young life. Like I miss my last not 19th in prison, all my twenties in prison, all my thirties in prison and quarter of my forties was in prison. So I still had excitement of a young person as, as this person who was 50 years young. Were you hopeful at that time that, that you weren't going to be in that long or what were your, after I come I so, you know, I attempted suicide in 1989 after I realized that I had taken a life in a way and I like I did that no matter what I try to do to pretend I did that I went around the unit I was in cell block 5 448 2nd Avenue North and I took about 30 pills medication didn't even know what it was but the idea in my mind was I just I'm gonna kill myself because I can't stand with the you know I'm not that person so I'm not gonna live because I don't deserve to live and how many years had you been in in Caged at this point? I had not been no years. It was 19. I got arrested May of 1989, and um, this happened in 1989. Okay. When I realized how severe I, what I had done, how bad it was. 
I knew I didn't want to live. And so, you know, when I took those pills, it just put me straight to sleep. And I woke up and then, you know, like in the movies, like I actually literally, I pinched myself and uh, I realized I was alive. And I just, I just made a prayer, sort of like, you know, God, if you give me a chance, you protect me, allow me to live, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to do good things. I'm going to try my best, something like that. And, um, you know, I just stayed on path. And one old head had told me while I was in jail, before I had gotten a life sentence, he said, man, if you stay in prison about 10, 10 years, man, you can file for a clemency and you can get your sentence reduced. And so I had that idea in my mind and I tried to get the clemency, but in clemency means mercy. And we have a governor right now, Governor Lee, who has like several clemencies on his desk that he hasn't even signed yet. And I'm talking about more than 50. And so, you know, I believed I would get a clemency. And so kind of like the idea that I would get out. So I made myself believe that I could get out of prison. And so I acted like a person who wasn't in prison. So psychologically, I kind of thought from time to time I'm in school. And that way it worked because I... I read a lot, read thousands of books, you know, and, um, you know, I've had many, many, many transformations in prison. Uh, one, for example, I was working in a metal plant at like my third, fourth prison. I was at Turning Center Industrial Prison and Farm. They had a metal plant, a wood plant and a paint plant. It's surrounded by the Duck River. Ninety nine percent of the employees are white. You're hidden and. It's scary. They had a picture of Nathan Bedford Forrest and General Lee on the wall as you go up to the visiting gallery to the left. And, you know, you knew you was around people who believed in, mm-hmm. you know, the Confederacy. You know, and they weren't all bad in, ter- in terms of the way they treat us. But, you you know, if you got these symbols around, you know what, you, what you're yeah. dealing with. This is a prison. This is a state property with Nathan Bedford Forrest and General Lee on the wall, right? So, um, you know, I was saving up to buy me a TV in the metal plant. And I took, I put my box cutter down and for a split second or two, who knows, I turned back around and it's gone. I reported it. I was instantly taken to solitary confinement because I lost possession of a class A2, which is class A disciplinary report is the highest you can receive in Tennessee Department of Corrections. I would ultimately end up getting 20 some days that I would end up in solitary confinement for losing possession of that class A2. But what happened is, is somebody left a book inside of the cell and usually it's just a blanket and a Bible. So they left a book. It was titled On the Road to Babylon. And I began to read that book. And for the first time in my life, I saw the pictures from reading the words in my head. I felt the emotion from the words as what they meant. Never had that experience before. Never completed a book, a complete book in my life until I was in that hole for that 28 days. And I left that experience transformed in a way that when I left, I began to, I became an avid reader. I'm challenging people and their ideas about life. I'm exploring my own ideas about history, asking myself philosophical philosophical questions. Why am I here on this earth? What's going on? And so what I'm trying to say to you is that, you know, and I think I was like 20 at that time. Hope kept representing itself to me in the form of different types of experiences. 
that's how hope came to me. So I, you know, and, and, and one acronym for hope is like helping other people evolve. And so there was these different things that's coming into my life. You know, so knowledge began really to transform me more than anything else. And of course, I tried, I tried religion. I failed at religion. I, I was, you know, raised Christian. And I tried to become a Muslim. That's how I got the name Rahim. I was not born Rahim. And in my book, I kind of give you the details. I was not even born Rodney. So I'm this dude that, you know, in my, in my poem, Who Am I? There was a stanza where I said, um, don't know my real name. Can you feel this freedom campaign? So, you know, I was born Arthel Lawrence Young. Young is my granddad's uh, name. His name was Roy Washington Young. And on that side, which is my mom's dad, uh, his dad, he his dad was white. So Pap, which is my granddad, looked like a white dude. You know what I'm saying? He was real, real, real light. You could just like real, real light. And uh, I was closer to him. And I probably picked up more of his ingenious uh, DNA. Like my, my granddad was a original blacksmith. And there was these houses that some of them still exist today on Providence Heights. My granddad built those houses. My granddad was this can fix everything kind of dude, you know, can do it all, you know. And so I looked up to him. He was the real man of my life, you know, in terms of like who I looked up to. And, you know, I just think about him. I'm just thinking about like, yeah, you know, and I can see some of my childhood, you know, as I, as I sit and I'm, you know, sharing with you and I'm seeing things like this and these images in my mind and, and how, you know, hope came to me because prison it makes you or it breaks you or in making you, it reveals yourself to you. And then, you know, at least for me, I was able to see, you know, the places where I needed growth and I was able, you know, to be kind of like an inspiration for other people. So the reason I didn't lose hope and I had faith is because something always happened to take me up another level or a notch of consciousness. For example, you know, my dad died in 1995. While I was in prison and me and my older brother who I met in prison for the second time, different mother, same father, be became cellmates. My oldest brother, you know, uh, Chubby Buford, um, Robert Buford the, uh, Jr., we went to the wake and I'm looking at this dude in this casket and it's my dad and I don't feel nothing, no sadness, no nothing. And I, I think about this lyric from Tupac Shakur and me against the world album and and it was kind of I'm paraphrasing it but I remember him saying like my anger wouldn't let me feel for a stranger and and that's kind of how I saw my dad five years later my sister is murdered I'm still in prison looking at her chains around my ankles around my waist and around my hands and I'm looking at this I'm seeing my mom over there and I remember hugging my mom I could smell all this smoke it's like nervous wreck but when I see my sister it was almost like things went silent and I interpreted something inside of myself that said this is what you had you you did to somebody else's family mm. and that blew me away because it's like I knew then just how much harm 
in pain that I had caused because I'm feeling this unexplainable emotional pain and weight and heaviness because I'm looking at my sister and I didn't protect her. She was younger than me. And she's dead. She was killed. This guy gets six years and completes his sentence in less than four because he gets two days for every one. One day that he served and he was trying to kill my brother. And here it was. I was sitting in prison with a life and 20 year sentence. I shot a gun into the floor trying to do a robbery and the bullet ricocheted and it hit a guy. And he died 72 hours later. You know, and, um, you know, I'm looking at my sister and I'm feeling everything that I never felt before about what I had done again. So, you know, why didn't I lose hope? Because the only way, you know, for me to really fully explain to people, to help them to understand that, you know, we're not the worst thing that we've ever done. It's to be a voice and a witness for that and to be able to articulate that and help people to understand it and be willing to sit and and, and, and be vulnerable in a way that the shame of what makes, you know, society condemn me and look down on me. You know, that same shame is what, you know, I'm saying, hey, I'm an American. I'm still talking about who am I? That's what built the country, even though I didn't mean it. But don't condemn me. And don't condemn the country because I'm an American. You can't divorce me from my history. And so that's the tie and the connection. And so I won't lose hope because my hope is connected to this country. See, it's bigger than me, this dude that went to prison. And, you know, it's way, way bigger than that. And that's part of what has to happen for even people like yourself. You know, when you want to engage this work, you expanding on your consciousness in a way that, like, you get at least try to impact society to raise levels of consciousness and awareness of people that you're going to be coming into contact with because some people are living so small in their individual lives and don't even believe that they can live larger and be much more impactful is because they hadn't heard your voice, right? They hadn't heard me. They hadn't heard this question. They don't really know. And since, mm -hmm. you know, I'm here and I'm participating you know, this is available to all of us because we're all, you know, those of us who were born in America and some people come to America and be naturalized and become, you know, citizens. But we all have something so great. It's not just from the country itself, but it's because we're human in the, 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 the natural tenacity of a human being. The ability to not only um, adapt, but to evolve and changed your very environment to create a society, which we have done. You know, everything, like, as I look into this room, and it's colorful and it's vivid. It's telling a story to me. I see the albums from way back. It reminded me of hip-hop and scratching on the mic. And I see all, I mean, all of this that's in this room right now was conceived in somebody's mind. I mean, that's so much, you know, that's why I didn't lose, because I could see different when I was caged when I was in prison and I knew different because I educated myself and there's no Christian no true Christian alive who could deny me my right of passage into you know what it means to be born again because Paul in the Bible who was once Saul was responsible for a million times worse than what I've done but even on his road to Damascus, and he was blind, and he saw Christ. 
you know, and I don't wear my religious identity to say this is who I am, but I have my own transformations, plural. Why am I less than his? I believe in God, too. I'm representing, too. It's just I don't have a religious point of view about why I do what I do. Why you can't recognize the Paul in me and how I am? I'm Raheem now. I'm not out there. I'm not Rodney. I'm Raheem now. So what about me? And the only way I can keep asking that question, I have to keep talking. But I know we're better than what we have shown. I'm better than what I have done in my 30 years ago, you know, something uh, years ago. And I've been making a new history ever since 1989, May the 5th. You got to count that too. 26 in, six out. So I have, what, what's that, 32 years of a different history than the, you know, yeah, I did a bad thing. Feel bad about that? I try to live my contrition by doing good. I took responsibility for that, you know. I did them 26 years in prison. That was my punishment. And I, I, I changed. I transformed, and here I am. So, you know, I want people to know that, you know, you can come and emerge like, you know, the phoenix. You can come out of the social death, the mental death, the depression, the whatever it is that's holding you back from wanting to be the best that you can be. And your best self, you can come back from that. You know, you can rise above that. And that's really what my path is right now. I, I want to rise above it. I don't want to deny it, but I don't want to be combined, confined to it to be like, that's the only thing that I'm ever going to be. And so that's why I'm trying to do things, you know, like my degree at American Baptist College. A lot of people think you go to American Baptist College, you're just going there to be a preacher, a Bible or some kind of Bible student or, you know, no. My degree, my bachelor's degree is in entrepreneurial leadership. They have a music degree. They have various degrees. It's just that the name is just a HBCU or Historical Black College. And um, they gave me a chance. And so I'm trying to make good on that chance, you know. And, um, you know, that's why I tell my real life story. And, you know, it's so much to it. And I'm just one person that I'm talking. That is about thousands like me. Just in Tennessee, we have over 30,000 people tied to the Tennessee Department of Corrections in some jail, some prison right now. You brought up, um, well, does that have anything to do with, I know there's been a lot of push recently for more bail reform. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, bail, and I was the National Community Bail Fund Manager from 2018 until uh, I think it was May of 2021. So bail is is actually connected to the sojourn of, of black people in America when, um, you know, after the Emancipation Proclamation and the Civil War. Families that were freed, individuals who were freed, would pull their monies together and go buy the freedom of their loved one so that they could be free. Bail funds function in that same manner from in the principal sense that, you know, community money is used to go extract someone from prison who is not guilty of a crime, someone who has been charged with a crime. And in Nashville, Tennessee, bail amounts initially are set by like magistrates or commissioners. 
But after that phase, there's another phase where these individuals end up in front of a general sessions judge who is an elected official. And that person can decide to reduce the bail, remove the bail, and allow that person to return to his or her family so that, you know, you don't lose your house, you don't lose your your job, you don't lose your family, your kids. Because the worst thing that you ever, you know, like yourself, you know, if you didn't have the money, you would have, your experiences could have been totally different, mm -hmm. right? And so Bell's funds act as a counter, like this David that goes up against Goliath within the criminal legal system. And it, the reason we needed bail reforms or we need to think differently about how people are released who are only charged with offenses, it's a, it's a couple of reasons. But just, just give me, I'll give you a few contexts. 70% of the people who are charged with domestic violence cases are dismissed. While I was with the bail fund, over 53% of the cases of people that we bailed out, cases were dismissed. We spent over $3 million the time that I was there bailing people out, revolving fund. But what I determined, as I looked at the system, I said, wait a minute, what are we doing here? These judges are the real reason why these bail amounts are so high. There's nothing in Tennessee law that says you have to set bail amounts at any amount. And when I identified the problem, my idea was let's deal with the judges. And that's where I am now. That's why, you know, we have Nashville Community Court Watch. Because we want to put eyes on the judges because judges have a lot of power. And judges are elected officials. And judges have the ability to not impose these ransoms that we call bail on individuals who have not been convicted of a crime. And so we do need it because the only reason why bail was even implemented to begin with is so that a person would return to court. And what we learned is that money has absolutely nothing to do with why, you know, in a person returning to court. Because for every person that the National Community Bail Fund bailed out, 90 plus percent, 90 like 7 percent of the people returned. And for the people that didn't return, that were different stories. Six people died while out on bail while I was there. Um, some people ended up in rehab institutions. So they didn't, you know, make it to court because they're trying to get help. So the narratives, you know, that are hidden have to be really, you know, put out there because we don't really know what's even going on with bail. And so, yeah, we do need reform. It does help people out, but it's something that is just a symptom of a, of a larger problem problem because bail is only a slice of what's happening within the criminal legal system. We need bail reform. We need indigent defense reform. <laughs> we need sentencing, sentencing reform, and we need prison reform. I mean, Tennessee, um, harder sentencing than another, or tougher sentencing than other states. Absolutely. If you just look at the life sentences, for example, a life sentence in Tennessee that you can parole is a death sentence. Meaning if you get a life sentence with parole in Tennessee right now, it's a 51-year life sentence. You have to get sentenced at 10 years old in order to survive it. So it's not even a real parolable sentence. So it's a mis it's, it's the idea is just false, right? And so we're the only state in the South that has a 51-year life sentence that's why do you, Why did you say you have to be 10 to survive it? That would make you 60, right? Right. Because is that if, the lifespan in, in prison? Well, actually, that... At some point, 60 years was like the lifespan that they thought the average person would live. And that's what a life sentence is based on, a 60-year sentence. Okay. And I also said that because if you're 18 and you get a 51-year life sentence, you add 18 plus 
51 years. Oh, yeah. And I'm saying, even if you survive it, you're old. You're, you're not going to have a quality but, of yeah. life. And the thing about the country in which we live in, second chances are, you know, what kind of like makes this country what it, like if you're an immigrant that came here on your own, you were coming for a second chance. Even the original Europeans who were the, 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 the settlers, even though they went on manifest destiny and say God's way is the way is still a second chance. We want to do something different. And then even from a revolutionary war perspective, like, hey, England, you're not going to tax us without, you know, we're going we're gonna to go to war with you, you know, because we want our own second chance, our own autonomy, our own governance, you know, independence, right? And yeah, so, you know, you just have to just kind of see what's really going on, you know, and again, we live in a country that has the worst prison system because if you go to England and places, Finland, even Russia has a better system than we have in terms of people getting second chances. So, you know, part of what our work with the Unheard Voices Outreach is, is that our vision is to create a second a second chance culture for people leaving jails and prison so that, you know, once they are released, they can live a whole life and a full life. That means we have to, you know, find ways to clip off the power of felonism, what holds us back. We have to find ways that we can get mental health services, health care provided. It's bigger than just housing and jobs because that's just one thing. We need help with the mind because there's a certain level of damage that happens just going into prisons in and of itself. So, you know, we do have the harshest sentences, I think, in the South right now. And, um, and it's this idea of being tough on crime somehow it means something to people who want to hurt. Like they, it's like we want you to. We want to hurt you because you hurt somebody. There's no love in that, and that's not Christian. Because you know, even beside Jesus, at the time of the last hour, you know, I'm a theology student as well. There were two people. At least one of them, Jesus said, "Hey, you will be in heaven with me," and that was dismissed. We actually have a dismiss house here too. But um, yeah, there's no compassion for the things that are done that hurt other people. And that's because there is a segment, a group of people that are controlling the narrative. And people like you are going to have to help us change the narrative that there is a thing called restorative transformative justice. And it's not about the person only who committed the crime. It's about the person who was harmed by the crime that was committed. And how do we move towards healing? How do we put some money in the pocket of a person that, you know, was harmed? Like, what do we do to make you feel safe again? And these are the different types and tough questions that we're not answering. And as long as somebody's controlling the narrative and making me think that if I'm tough on crime, somehow I'm doing the right thing. I'm living in rural Tennessee. And I think I'm doing the right thing because I'm being I'm following somebody saying I'm tough on crime. So they're making me a hardened person. And they're making me hate people who, who make mistakes. You see? And so this thing is so deep. This is why, you know. And, I, you know, it's hard, but we got to do it, man. We got to get into the rural places in Tennessee and have some serious conversations. And I might can't get in there by myself, you know, because I'm black. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, that's real talk because there's some white people that probably ain't never seen somebody black in real life in the Appalachians. <laughs> and true, yeah. You know what I'm saying? I don't really know. Well, but they certainly never had a conversation uh, in depth with them and, and about such sensitive topics. Yeah, I mean, but we have to. So when Raheem brought up restorative justice, I really didn't know what he was talking about. So I did a little bit of research, and here's what I found. This is actually an old idea pioneered by the Native Americans in the Maori of New Zealand. 
is focused on healing community and reintegrating criminals into society. The idea is, and studies have shown, that restorative justice reduces recidivism rates and improved restoration, which is really about the healing that the victim gets through the process. When a crime is committed, a meeting between the victim and offender is organized, and they share their experience of what has happened and who was harmed, and the aim is to get offenders to take responsibility for their actions. You know, understand the harm that they've caused, and just have an opportunity to redeem themselves. Oh, and of course, discourage further similar behavior. And the victim, well, they're given an active role in this process, and that really helps reduce feelings of anxiety and powerlessness. But our current system really focuses on a, um, a, a retributive approach and, and a punitive approach, which is about establishing guilt and really punishing the offender. Where restorative justice is a dialogue-driven approach, uh, helps restore the victim and offender and the community members who have been harmed because obviously the victim needs help, but the offender could need some help too because of the situation that they were in to begin with. So here's how it works. You can use it, of course, for a misdemeanor, something think along the lines of vandalism. But they even use this for more serious crimes like sexual assault. And so what survivors want from a meeting with a person who had harmed them was they want to hear that that person was, uh, they want to hear that person say that you're telling the truth, that I did that to you, that it's my fault and not yours. And there's, you know, some indication that the person who harmed them truly understands what they've done. And of course, that they won't do it again. Sometimes families involved, and they really go deep into this and, and, and very careful and empathetic because they avoid defining people by their behaviors and experiences, and they avoid labels like victim, offender, and perpetrator. Um, because those terms deny that all people are capable of growth and change. So they use words like survivor because it honors the person in the process. And then they, they're careful about um, other phrases, and they use the one, the responsible person or the person who assaulted the survivor. And this is really to show that people are more than the worst thing that they have ever done. Restorative justice can be an alternative to punitive policy. Schools can use it in place of suspension or expulsion. A study done in 2018 in California showed youth who participated in restorative justice programs were 44% less likely to commit future crimes than those who went through a county juvenile justice system. In 2014 in Longmont, Colorado, the youth recidivism rate dropped from 70 to 8% after a restorative justice program was implemented. And a large majority of victims report feeling positive about the process. So we have around 700,000 juveniles are, that are arrested each year. If we enrolled each one in a recidivism and the recidivism rate dropped by just 25%, that's a potential savings of $23 billion and many many lives transformed i love america just like everybody else and some of you know my colleagues may not take my position on it but i mean i'm here man i, I could have died in prison a couple of times i've been in gang fights you know um i mean it's so much i could tell you that i, I remember from that but it all shaped and it molded me and i hate that i can't be who I am without 
what actually happened, which somebody was harmed, a family was harmed. But if like I can't like I regret the pain that I caused, but I love the person I became. I you know, and I'm becoming. I so I, I it's no way to reconcile me with like I'm like, okay, since I can't change the past of what happened in nineteen eighty nine, everything after that, you know, and I'm still, you know, struggling because there's times, you know, I could have went back to prison. You know, I'm on parole, a life sentence. And I'm fortunate to have not gone back. And that's how deep this thing goes. So it's it's a it's it's a lot, you know, and that's why there's so much to be said. That I if I'm I mean, like I'm that's why I'm volunteering to talk and have conversations and I'm open to it, you know, because some people just afraid. They don't want people to know, you know, the stigma on it. But you know what? I gotta push through it because that's the kind of country we live in, you know. When when you know you can do some good, and you have the means, or at least you believe you do, you gotta try. Why not? What do we have to lose? All right. I mean, that's that's all, man. That's why we're here. So yeah, yeah I can appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Raheem, is there anything else on your mind that you'd like to to tell us about? I, I think. You, you, a couple things that you talked about, mm -hmm. I've seen. Mm -hmm. I'm on the difference between a right and a privilege. Oh, thank you so much for bringing that up. Because if I would be remiss if I didn't. So the reason I thought about that is because, as I mentioned, there are 420,000 plus Tennesseans who can't vote. They didn't know that not voting was a separate act than just being convicted of a crime. Okay. So legislators in Tennessee in the 80s, early 80s, decided we're going to take away voting privileges, not rights, because rights should not be able to be taken away by any person in any agency, any branch of government within the United States of America, because the most central thing to our citizenship is our voting right. It's the only thing in America, in my opinion, that makes us equal. You can be short, I can be tall. You can be big, I can be small. You can be rich, I can be poor. There can be someone in between. But our vote is equal. So if voting were a birthright, it couldn't be taken. But a privilege, it's something somebody can bestow upon you and if they can bestow it upon you, they can take it from you. That's what a privilege is. And right now, our voting right functions as a privilege. And it can be taken by the force of law, by the people who are in control politically. Any political uh, amount of control that is a majority can restore the vote. And can even make it a right in Tennessee. Like in certain, some states, a few states, you don't even lose your voting rights. Because they recognize that as a right. There are certain things called an inalienable right, right? First degree amendment, you know, first amendment, you know, 14th amendment, you know, due process right. You don't never lose your due process rights, ever. So how do you lose what is most central to your citizenship, which is a vote? How can you lose Something so sacred 
toward democracy. The oldest democracy on the planet, in fact. So when I look at that, I ask questions like, who does this advantage? Who does this disadvantage? And so I look at it until it's a right. It can't be taken unless a person commits treason. Then you give up your citizenship rights. You leave this country, go somewhere and say, I want to be a citizen here. And you can't do dual citizenship and be in that country. You give up your citizenship rights. But don't take it from me and don't tell me you're going to take it and say it's collateral damage. Collateral consequence. No, this is the most sacred thing that I have or I, I never had. I never voted. But this is sacred to my nation, to, to me, that I can vote. That I'm equal to, to you because just being black and American fighting for voting rights. The 19, what, 64 Voting Rights Act. I mean, in the all the way it took to get to this point. And you mean you can just take it with the enactment of a, of a passage of a law? And that's a state law, correct? That's a state law. That's a state law. And th there's a couple states where that's not. Is it Vermont? And, Vermont. Mm -hmm. um, New York. Okay. Um, I think Florida just had this thing going on with their vote voting. And, 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 you know, and just let me hit on another point since you're asking me. And you might have to chop this thing up into different, you know, segments. But on the ballot in 2022. And, you know, I want to give credit to one of my colleagues, uh, uh, Jeannie Alexander, uh, No Exceptions Prison Collective, uh, No Exceptions, which is an organization that, you know, has been pushing for reforms and different types. But the one thing that I'm talking about now outside of the life sentence, 51-year life sentence, is, is slavery is going to be on the ballot. And we're going to vote. I can't vote, but I hope you all vote and your your, your audience votes and, and decides to remove slavery from Tennessee's constitution. Because right now in the federal constitution, it says slavery is prohibited except if you've been duly convicted of a crime. So right now, technically, every federal prisoner who's been convicted of you know, a crime, they're talking about felonies, is considered, you know, a slave. I'm considered a slave. Even though I'm out here, you don't see me like you're not a slave, but technically, constitutionally, I am. Because I'm still tied to the system with this conviction. And slavery is only prohibited except if you've been duly convicted of a crime. So the reality is, is that the 13th Amendment in Tennessee's Amendment, uh, Article 1, I think it's Section 30, 30 or 32, I'm not, my memory serves me well, it legalized slavery. Before that, there was no constitutional amendment or anything that, you know, gives slavery its legal port. Until the 13th Amendment, until the Article 1, Tennessee. And so, you know, that's something that people need to be thinking about. Like, okay, so that's one thing that any white person who can vote can do and say, okay, like, okay, I don't agree with slavery. It was wrong. So let's get it out of the Constitution. That's a very simple thing that white people can do in America, in, in America too, but I'm just, because it's going to be national, but in Tennessee. You don't agree with slavery, remove it from the Constitution. That's the least that you can do. Like, we don't have to talk about reparations. None of that. Let's get slavery out of the Constitution. You get it out of the Constitution, we can begin to, you know, have some more conversations. And what's next? I mean, so there are some steps that we're taking and there are people fighting that we don't know about, you know. And uh, I'm involved in that campaign as well. But right now, um, 
the biggest thing for me as it relates to my citizenship rights is the no vote, no citizen, no freedom campaign. And um, that's what Unheard Voices Outreach is going to be pushing and, you know, talking about and trying to get people to understand that, look, we messed up, we did bad. But at least allow for the vote to be restored and make it a right. Let all Tennesseans vote. Let the majority decide the outcomes of what happens in this state. Let's not create a false majority that is a minority. And the minority or the majority isn't just necessarily like, you know, like the numbers. Who has the best ideas for advancing policy and legislation to help the state be the best that it can be? And right now we don't have these kind of conversations because they got us focused on I'm against abortion. I'm against crime. I'm against. Hold up. What are you for? Are you for anything? Would you like to have Wi-Fi in rural Tennessee? You know, would you like to have some portable hospitals? And so, you know, we can address some of these, you know, ailments that are happening in these places that we don't talk about. You know, diabetes, heart disease. That's, you know, what about that? Why can't we earmark some money to these rural places, set up some infrastructure that will put them on the same page with everybody else and they start accessing information for themselves. So these are the kind of things that I, you know, I think about and I'm willing to use my life and my whole life as an instrument, as an example, as, you know, a person who's dedicated to seeing better outcomes in, in, in the state where he lives. Yeah. 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 I love that, man. I mean, you just, we can always do better. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I, you know, I learned in prison, this guy I used to study on, his name was Abriel Agbar. He told me, man, a thousand times, he said, remember, young brother, he said, the biggest room in life is room for improvement. Mm. Ain't no room bigger. Because you ain't going to get perfect. But he said, the biggest room in life is room for improvement. And I believe that. Well, if we had an, an action item for people listening, what, what would that be? Where do they need to go? Um you know what? Talk about unheard voices. Um, if that's yeah, so unheard voices is my baby, man. I found it unheard voices, man. When I was on a bunk bed, two thousand and five, meditating, and the poem came through. Who am I? And I, I answered the question. I said, "Society doesn't seem to know." Representing the unheard voices, my name is Rogelo. You see us in the now, our prison condition. Blind to the facts of our mental afflictions, past decisions made before our 15-second mindless crime spree felony convictions. The monies, the honeys, the madness, materialistic sadness, 13 brothers, 5 sisters, seriously drastic. Who am I? Who am I? And that's a, very, that's a long poem that is in my book, uh, Save Your Own Life. Choosing the Right Path is not always clear by Raheem, but... One of the things that I'm trying to do is to be a louder voice, a louder example, strong example as 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 a representative in the Unheard Voices Outreach, as the executive director. And, you know, we need support, you know, and I just quite frankly, it's financial support because we can't do anything without funding. And that's the hardest thing to do to fund an unpopular idea. And the unpopular idea is people getting out of prison. 
And we're trying to change the narrative to say that it's okay for people to get out of prison. In fact, 95, 97% of people actually get out of prison. And the question that needs to be answered, what kind of people do you want coming home? And so we're saying that mm. we are the kind of people that you want coming home. And so, you know, people can support Unheard Voices Outreach. You can go to our website. It's www.unheardvoicesoutreach.org or .com. And, you know, you can donate on PayPal. You can donate on um, uh, uh, this, uh, what's the, uh, Venmo. Or you can just, you know, send us a, a, a check in the mail. It's, we're 501c3 organization, tax exempt. And you'll see, you can see the work that we do. We do have, you know, we put up our videos and we keep people abreast of what we're doing. We have, uh, we have a Facebook, we have a Twitter, we have an Instagram. And you can actually see that we actually do this work. We're a grassroots organization. We have never received government funding. We have never had that. The only thing we've ever had is private money and people who support and believe in the idea. And that's one thing that you can do, you know, to help to support us. You can buy the book and you don't even have to keep it. You can give the book back and I donate the book to someone that's in, you know, a juvenile detention center. I go in and I go speak and I try to, you know, we have a P3 plug and pipelines to prison program. Um, so, you know, my organization is basically saying that there are people who are coming out of prison who can make contributions to society who are going to be law abiding and who want to be a part of the change. And that's what the second chance culture is all about. So that's really what I'll be asking, you know, is to support the unheard voices and, you know, invite me to some place where I can talk, have a conversation with people who don't really understand what's going on and give me a chance. And I'm not just, you know, a prison person, you know, like have a conversation about, you know, prison industrial complex. I'm multifaceted. I love philosophy. I've studied Socrates, Plato, I uh, love science. I mean, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I, I mean, I'm into. I'm a nerd in a lot of ways. I mean, for example, how many people knew that the light, the 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 light traveling from the sun travels at 186,000 miles per second, and it strikes the Earth at its equator. That causes the Earth to spin at a thousand thirty-seven and a third miles per hour a unit, followed by twenty-one ciphers. I mean. I'm interested in things like that. Now, imagine that the light from the sun, Earth's equator, Earth is spinning. We're spinning so fast, and we think we're doing fast at 90, 100. We're doing 1,000-plus miles per hour. You know, this is the Earth. And, like, so I kind of keep things in context. I see, like, you know, I, we need to be humbled because even just to be here is a miracle. You know, you look at, you know, we're just in the right spot that it's not too hot and it's not too cold you know, as being the earth and what it does. And so, you know, I love jazz. Uh, I like bowling. I can't play a lick of golf, but I'll try. Um, I love motorcycles. I just sold my motorcycle. I didn't want to, but I, I wanted to get a cruise and I was, you know, it's, it's a lot, you know, so I'm a human being. I'm trying to say that like this dude that, you know, he did a bad thing in life, you know, and I, I you know, I regret and I hate, but you know what? I hate that I, messed up so bad but then I became a better person and I want an opportunity to show that what I'm doing is something that can happen for other people the last request I would make is that people you know be willing to sign up to our watchers project because we're going to be going into prisons watching parole hearings and if they don't want to go into prison and watch parole hearings 
you know, contact us so we can get them hooked up with the uh, Nashville Community Court Watch because basically we need to build power in the community, diverse power and groups and people coming together, not feeling no shame, not feeling like you got to do something. Look, we love our lives and we just want to work together and build power in the community. And that's basically, you know, what I'm trying to do on her voices. Man, that's great. That's great. And I'm going to, I'd like to get more information on that too, man. So, uh, I, man, Raheem, uh, that, that was awesome. That was so much to, to think about, yeah. um, what you gave us today and just, mm-hmm. man, you laid it all out there and we're vulnerable and I, I, I can't thank you enough yeah. for that. Wow. That's what's up. And maybe I should plug a book or two, you know? Yeah, man, let's hear it. You might've heard of the new Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander. That's a good book to kind of get you in to really seeing, you know, what's happening within, it's called the new Jim Crow, the history of how we, you know, created mass incarceration. It's an older book, but it's, it's, it's worth looking into. Um, there's a um, there's a book I forget the author's name, but it's a great book. It's called Until Until We Reckon. You can kind of get some deep insights into what's happening into our society, and uh, there's a book that I think is pretty good. That I think it was written by a public defender, uh, Gideon's Promise, and to see you know what that's about. But yeah, education is is it can be the entry point, and then then we come together and have discussions about the book. You know. Let's create pathways and avenues by which we can have conversation, meaningful conversations, that it doesn't have to be me pointing my finger at you or you pointing your finger at me, but we're looking at the issues, the real issues, and then we're trying to figure out what we can do as individuals, community, to you know address those problems. We want to be able to solve those problems. We can do what we can do, right? And that's really what I want to be a part of. Yeah, man, I love it. Me too, man. All right. I want to thank my guest today, Raheem Buford, for his time and just his vulnerability and his honesty. And if you want to learn more about Unheard Voices, check him out on Instagram. I want to thank you, the listener, for being open-minded. I want to thank my good friend, Andy Skibb, producer-editor, for making me sound a heck of a lot cooler than I am. I want to thank my wife, Lisa, for pushing me to do this podcast. You can follow along on Instagram at the white privilege guy and don't forget to check out the white privilege guy.com for more info on where you can listen to this podcast 